You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Professor Colm Lennon from Anuth University. His paper was entitled Corporate Clergy and Lay Society, Collegiate Churches in Early Modern Ireland. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. First, uh, a word of thanks to the organisers for the superb arrangements for the conference, uh, which uh, promises to be uh, most uh, inspiring and stimulating. Um, We've heard two excellent uh, presentations on Galway religious institutions already, and um, I suppose my paper is inspired in part by my being here in the city of St. Nicholas's Cathedral or uh, Collegiate Church. And what I want to do is to look uh, in, at the phenomenon of these priestly corporations called colleges uh, in a general way. Um, these um, were part of a wider movement of European confraternalism in the late Middle Ages, and uh, they were associations of secular priests bound by principles of common living and communal service, but not by monastic rule, and they spread mainly through the east, south, and here in the midwest of Ireland. Uh, By 1550, there were some two dozen Irish churches that could be described as collegiate um, under diverse patronage, ranging from the large architecturally impressive buildings such as St. Nicholas's here in Galway, St. Mary's in Yull, to smaller, mostly multicellular parish churches in city, town and manor. Only a small number of these, including St. Nicholas's and St. Mary's Eol, were of strictly collegiate foundation, with perhaps up to 8, 10 or 12 priests living communally, enhancing parish liturgy and ministering locally. The rest, such as St. Peter's Drogheda and St. Mary's Callan, for example, evolved as chantry colleges comprising three or more chapels established by townsfolk and gentry in their parish churches and usually united by charter under one confraternity of several priests and altars. In many centres, such as R.D., Slane, Hoth and Gowran, there were collegiate residences close to the church. And the churches themselves benefited from lay patronage, as we've heard, in the form of extended naves and transepts, new chapels and altars, porches and funeral monuments erected to the memory of parish families. By the time of the Reformation, so prominent were these collegiate churches that many parishes could be described as the colleges writ large, to adapt a phrase of Adrian Empey. This paper attempts an overview of the history of the Irish collegiate churches in the immediate post-Reformation period. Unlike in England and Wales, where in the reign of Edward VI, the colleges were dissolved, with some exceptions such as Westminster and Windsor, there was no blanket closure of these non-monastic communities of priests in Ireland. 
although a few, such as Holy Trinity Cork and Blessed Virgin Athenry, appear to have been terminated by the 1570s, most of the rest continued to function legally for some decades or longer, um, while retaining corporate resources of lands and buildings, as well as other ecclesiastical perquisites. The Reformation, as we've heard, had a major impact on religious practice um, of the refounded St. Nicholas's College in Galway, and um, political religious upheavals in Munster affected changes in the collegiate churches at Kilmallock and Yall, for example. An examination of the strategies for the survival of the collegiate churches reveals the importance of these institutions, firstly as agencies for the rallying to the defence of civic and religious liberties on the part of urban communities. Secondly, it shows how the shepherding of collegiate resources, especially through members of the original patronal families, may have helped to foster the mission of the reviving Catholic Church. And thirdly, there is evident in the responses to government plans to curtail collegiate rights on the part of Protestant, no less than Catholic protagonists, a pattern of resistance to the centralising state and established church. The Catholic Wardenship of Galway serves as a useful entree to this investigation as a well-documented example of civic defence of collegiate privilege and uh, I think it forms um, uh, a suitable and appropriate complement to what Stephen was talking about earlier. As St. Nicholas's Church was appropriated for Protestant worship in the early Elizabethan period under the newly refounded Royal College, the Catholic majority among the urban patriciate formed themselves into an unofficial corporation with a mayor and bailiffs separate from the municipal council. Using the papal uh, grant of 1485, these officials chosen specifically for the purpose, proceeded to select a warden and vicars for an alternative collegiate establishment. For the following 250 years, a dual system of Catholic and Protestant wardenship obtained. The latter, um, the the Protestant, um, uh, we've heard about, but the Catholic uh, wardenship was assertive of its rights to ecclesiastical benefices and rental income uh, that had been channeled from the collegiate endowment into Catholic hands at the time of the Reformation division in the 1550s. The Shadow Corporation defied not only the Protestant authorities in their maintenance of a self-perpetuating Catholic body, but also the jurisdiction of the Catholic Archbishop of Tuam, who claimed rights of supervision and visitation. The wardenship, which was eventually transmuted into the Bishopric of Galway in 1831, was the driving force behind a vibrant civic recusancy, as attested to by Warden James Fallon in 1620, when he said, The people of this town are so steadfast in the matter of the college's rights that for all the clergy in Ireland they would not lose one atom of their privileges. In the cities of Dublin and Drogheda, much civic energy was directed from the later 16th century towards the defence of prominent chantry colleges in the central parishes of St. Audouin and St. Peter, respectively. Both, under confraternal dedication to St. Anne, had at least six chaplains ministering at chantry chapels and living collegially, whose stipends were funded by donations from generations of laymen and women. 
After the Reformation, the extensive landed resources of the parish chantry systems remained under the control of the Catholic confreres, although their parochial worship was curtailed as the churches became centres of worship for the established church. Legal challenges to their charters in the early 17th century were successfully defended by the lay members, many of whom were lessers of Catholic, oh, sorry, of college property, as well as city councillors in Dublin and Drogheda. This inter- intertwining of Catholic property interests and civic office holding is reminiscent of the lay patronage of the tribes of Galway in respect of the wardenship. In the eastern cities, the lay members, acting cooperatively, negotiated compromises whereby a small portion of the substantial income from the chantry lands was conferred upon the parish rector. In Drogheda, an annual sum was also set aside for the support of six singing men in St. Peter's in return for the confirmation of the land of revenues to the corporation, while for Dublin, St. Audience in, Saint, in, in Dublin, a similar arrangement was worked out in respect of Christchurch Cathedral. Despite further state intervention in the 1630s, the property estates of the two major religious institutions were safeguarded by lay corporate expertise down to the 1640s. While parish fraternities were ubiquitous in the Pale and southeast of Ireland in the late Middle Ages, a number of towns witnessed the evolution of more elaborate chantry colleges with multiple chaplains living in common. These included Callan and Gowran in Kilkenny, Dundalk and R.D. in Louth and Nace in Kildare, all of which had wealthy parish churches and endowments of dozens of acres of land and property for the maintenance of priests. Local worthies such as Butler and Comerford in Callan, Bellew and Nugent in Dundalk, Verdon and St. Ledger in R.D., Uh, ensured as lay patrons the continuation of obituarial masses for the deceased relatives and their burial in splendour in the most favoured locations in the church. In the cases of Callan and Nace, the sovereign and burgesses of the towns had the right to select the college priests and persisted in doing so until the end of the 16th century. The infrastructure of the Chantry Colleges continued in being until at least the early 17th century, with their landed estates intact under the careful management of lay patrons. Among the strategies for the preservation of collegiate lands adopted by townsfolk in the late 16th century was the creation of trusts to use, comprising chaplains as well as lay people, to protect former ecclesiastical lands from falling into government hands, as in the case, for example, of the Brandon family's estates in Dundalk. Also attempted was the designation of extra ecclesia, uh, ecclesial buildings, if not the collegiate residences themselves, as small charitable enterprises such as poor houses and hospitals, apparently founded on the income from chantry lands, as in Gowran, Nace and Dundalk. While the chantry colleges in the towns of the eastern and southern pales may have survived under older management in some form until the mid-17th century, a less stable urban milieu in Munster affected collegiate continuity there. The Desmond Fitzgeralds were associated with the foundation of colleges in Kilmallock and Yeo, and that family's fortunes were reflected in the collegiate history. 
at Kilmallock, the Collegiate Church of Saints Peter and Paul was subsumed under the Church of Ireland parish after 1600, its religious affiliation having fluctuated during the Desmond revolts, and it was briefly restored to Catholic control in the 1640s. While there is little evidence of associated corporate activity, Patterns of Catholic burials in and close to the church were continuous throughout the early modern period. In Yall, the Collegiate Church of St. Mary was desecrated after the Earl of Desmond's siege of the town in 1579 and its buildings and estates were taken over by the New English under Sir Walter Raleigh and later Richard Boyle, Earl of Cork, the latter using the college as part of his forging of his uh, dynastic prestige. A long-established college on Scattery Island had a complex system of endowments and appointments to its chapter, which took much disentangling after the Reformation, but the city of Limerick benefited by by the bestowal thereon of the rights of admiralty over the Shannon Estuary, formerly commanded by the Prior and College. At Cork, where a vibrant civic chantry college had been established in Christchurch Parish in the late Middle Ages, the institution was apparently suppressed in the late 1570s. But here as elsewhere, an extra ecclesial system of Catholic worship persisted based on the chantry model of commemoration. Aristocratic and gentry patrons established colleges of of, uh, clergy on manorial estates in the late Middle Ages to the glory of their lineages, retaining the right of appointments of chantry chaplains. These included uh, in Meath uh, the institutions at Killeen and Dunsany under two uh, branches of the Plunkett family, uh, at Slane under the Fleming family, in County Dublin at Hoth under the St. Lawrence's and in Kildare, the Maynooth College founded by the Fitzgeralds, Earl of Kildare, Earls of Kildare. All were endowed with generous estates, including lands and ecclesiastical benefits, benefits uh, for obituarial service and were impressive mausoleums for the families. At the Reformation, most elite patrons appear to have quickly resumed their donations when the devotional milieu of the Chantry Colleges was called into question. James Fleming and his family retained possession of the extensive college buildings at Slane, while James Plunkett, Baron of Killeen, was granted the 1,000 acres donated by an ancestor to the college there. In the case of the collegiate institutions patronised by the Fitzgeralds of Kildare and the St. Lawrence's at Hoth, uh, the Fitzgeralds at Maynooth, of course, the parish churches were tied into the prebendary system of St. Patrick's Cathedral and were absorbed within the established church uh, at the Reformation. While the... um, Uh, St. Lawrence family may have used college resources for continuing chantry activity. The demise of uh, Fitzgerald's political power after the rebellion ultimately uh, worked to the advantage of the aforementioned Earl of Cork, uh, who was married uh, into the, or whose daughter married into the Kildare family, and he eventually supervised the restoration of the church at Maynooth. 
there is substantial, though compelling, evidence that the retained or reappropriate resources from the collegiate chantry system were diverted to the maintenance of Catholic priests and worship. This was certainly the contention of the Anglican Bishop of Cork, William Lyon, who in 1596 complained that unlike in England, the lands belonging to the undissolved Irish chantries were still being used to maintain massing priests. Thomas Lowe, incumbent of St. Audouin's Dublin in the 1630s, suspected that the income from St. Anne's Chantry College was being expended mostly on Catholic priests. In most places, appointments of chaplains as supernumerary to parish benefices continued into the 17th century in town and countryside, sometimes retaining their designation as priests attached to certain altars, such as the Mary priest or the Trinity priest, and supported from religiously denominated property, such as St. Catherine's land. In Cork, where the college itself was closed, continuing appointments of supernumerary chantry chaplains in the 1580s indicate the continuation of a regime of masses for the dead. In 1635, stipends from the RD Chantry College lands were transferred to a Protestant minister uh, from um, a popish priest. And indeed, the maintaining of several priests there and in Drogheda and Dundalk in the Chantry Colleges occasioned the setting up of an inquiry into the Louth Chantry lands in 1627. Sacred space for worship in church may have been increasingly denied the Catholic community, but the churchyards were shared. Mortuary chapels were erected in the grounds of collegiate churches at Hoth, Callan and Gowran in memory of Thomas St. Lawrence, Rose Archer and Edmund Butler and Alison Hackett and Piers Keeley, respectively. Many burials continued in the aisles of collegiate churches well into the 17th century, the symbols and iconography carved in memory of these lay families being undoubtedly Catholic. More tenuous are the links between the old chantry system and the innovative mission of the seminary-trained priests, but there are suggestive indications that income from the collegiate lands was applied uh, to the support of Reformed Catholicism. Mass houses, such as um, those in the former collegiate residence and the private homes of members of St Anne's Chantry College in Dublin, may have been funded from these sources, But how is the mass house in Dundalk that accommodated 700 people in 1618 financed? Did the sponsorship of it and of individual seminary priests, such as Father Mirtha Dowley, uh, who in 1608 ranged up and down the town of Callan clad in scarlet, come in part from residual collegiate funds? The patronage by the Flemings of Slane of a community of Capuchins uh, housed in the collegiate buildings from 1631 attested perhaps an adaptation of the older cantuarial system in which they and other noble families such as Plunkett, St. Lawrence and Fitzgerald had invested heavily to the spirituality of the new religious orders. Even though the Church of Ireland gradually appropriated the churches and residential buildings of the collegiate institutions by the mid-17th century, the problem of the unavailability of their property to the state church persisted to the chagrin of secular and ecclesiastical leaders. 
while in centres such as Kilmallock, RD, Hoth and Maynooth, consolidation of personnel may have occurred as the parishes absorbed the supernumerary chaplains and their stipends, many advowsons and impropriations associated with the collegiate system remained largely beyond the reach of the state church. Attempts by the joint state-church campaign of the 1630s to tackle the collegiate heritage as part of a wider campaign for reconstruction of the established church were um, frequently thwarted, however, by opposition from corporate or private interests. The onslaught on the extensive landed interests of St Anne's Chantry College, Dublin, through a government takeover of its entire management, failed ignominiously to the detriment of the reputation of the Lord Deputy Thomas Wentworth. In Drogheda, efforts by Bishop Bramhall in 1638 to transfer control of the Chantry Colleges of St. Peter's from the city corporation to the parish incumbent failed due to civic and clerical antagonism. In the case of Scattery Island in the Shannon Estuary, the Gaelic Bishop of Killaloo, Martha O'Brien, had asserted his rights to collegiate lands in County Clare in the early 1600s, but a successor, Bishop John Ryder, complained bitterly that the church estate had been dissipated among the Irish of the region. The most celebrated conflict regarding a collegiate church centred on the acquisition of St Mary's Yall by the Earl of Cork, in which Thomas Wentworth took a personal interest. Uh, Boyle was accused of having taken over the lands of the college and the clerical livings by deceitful means as part of his purchase of Sir Walter Raleigh's estates. The Earl went on to make the college the focus of his estates, building an elaborate family monument in the church, enjoying the ecclesiastical rights and income of the warden and chaplains as patron, and taking over the college residence as a family dwelling. The trial of the matter in Castle Chamber resulted in a deal involving a regrant of the college to Boyle in return for a payment um, of a huge fine in 1636, but the matter continued to generate hostility between the governor and the earl down to the fateful denouement in 1640 to 1641. Um, Boyle retained the estate and saw off his nemesis Wentworth. By that time, the other modest gains made by the Lord Deputy and Bishop Bramhall in their campaign against impropriated college lands in particular had been lost. In conclusion, the history of the um, collegiate institutions in the decades after the uh, Reformation points up some weaknesses in the early modern state in Ireland. Whether through administrative neglect or deliberate policy, the colleges and chantries were left intact for over a century until their eventual suppression in the 1690s. Ominously, an early closure of a college, that of St. Patrick's Collegiate Church, Dublin, which was the cathedral also, in 1547, had to be overturned eight years later due to the force of corporate clerical pressure. By allowing the colleges to survive, the authorities provided scope for the civic communities in which the collegiate churches were located to rally round the defence of their endowments and their personnel, 
thus marshalling resistance to the wider diminution of corporate privilege. Moreover, the financial and ecclesiastical endowments that were shepherded from the manorial and urban colleges by the gentry and patrician patrons were probably used for the support of Catholic clergy, first in the context of church papistry and later for the recusancy of the Counter-Reformation. Even with the colleges that became Protestant, the gains for the established church were limited. While some consolidation of ministry was accomplished, the independent-mindedness of lay patrons was evident in their reluctance to allow reappropriation of older sources of ecclesiastical power and revenue for the endowment of the state church. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.